Welcome to another episode of the Tom Trimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend and is having a great summer. Well, summer plans change. Um, they change and then they change again. So I've decided to come back to regular episodes. So we're back now and going forward with every other week episodes. Now, I know I said earlier this year that we'd be back to weekly episodes by September, but the writing projects are still all consuming so we're going to stick to the bi-weekly format for now. I'll let you know if that changes. I've got three books right now that I'm co-authoring. They're at various stages, which is both exciting but also daunting. Uh, so I, gotta, I have to preserve some time um, for those projects as well. Now, upcoming events happening uh, in the fall, uh, just to remind you of and get a jump on some, some PD this fall. Grading from the Inside Out, the two-day training, that'll be in Jonesboro, Arkansas, September 25th and 26th. Charleston, South Carolina, October 11th and 12th and St. Louis, Missouri, December 6th and 7th. Now, the event in St. Louis will be facilitated by Natalie Vardabasso. She'll be doing that in my place. Standards-Based Learning in Action, that's going to be in Seattle, Washington, October 16th and 17th. I'll have links in the show notes for all of those events. And also a reminder that my latest book, Redefining Student Accountability, is out now. Um, it's all about teaching responsibility and other behavioral attributes without distorting students' achievement grades. There's also a link in the show notes for that book as well. Okay, thanks for tuning in again uh, this week. Uh, we're back. A uh, big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I, I really do appreciate all of you. Uh, this week, my guest is Julie Schmidt-Hassan. Julie is the author of two books, including her latest Pause, Ponder, and Persist in the Classroom, How Teachers Turn Challenges into Opportunities for Impact. So that is going to be the focus of our conversation today. And in Assessment Corner, I want to just give you a reminder that now is the time to build your assessment literacy. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Julie Schmidt-Hassan is coming up. But first, I want to introduce you to my new opening segment called Mindset Minute. Yes, it is true for now. I have retired the Don't At Me segment. Maybe I'll bring it back every once in a while. But I know many listeners enjoyed that segment uh, as they've commented to me in passing. I mean, who doesn't enjoy the spectacle of listening to a middle-aged white man yell at clouds and tell kids to get off his lawn, right? <laughs> but... In all seriousness, after more than 100 episodes, uh, I wanted to refresh the podcast a little bit. So here's what this opening segment is going to be from this point forward. I'm calling it the Mindset Minute. Now, I suppose if I were being transparent, I should probably make that plural because it's highly unlikely that this segment will be exactly one minute long. But what I'm going to try to do in this opening segment is briefly share some thoughts around how important our mindset is for success. Now, these ideas are going to be sourced from a number of different places, books I've read, speakers I've heard, podcasts I've listened to, and certainly my own experience in trying to cultivate success both personally and professionally. I'd like to think that after 55 years of you know life that I've learned a few things about the kind of mindset it takes to be successful. Now, I'm not pretending I'm the most successful person in the world, and I'm certainly not pretending that I have all the answers. All I'm going to do is share my perspective on what I think are some favorable ways of thinking, some favorable ways of feeling, and some favorable ways of acting in order to be successful. I'm going to try to keep them brief. And again, I'm thinking, you know, one to three minutes max, just something to start the episode that may put you in a positive frame of mind or give you some tips going forward. So 
So let's get started here with the first one. I, I know there is a lot of talk and even some debate around things like the power of positive thinking or the law of attraction and all the different advocacies for how we think in the present moment. Now, what's interesting is that for me, our mindset is as much about the present moment as it is about creating any kind of future. Like, I don't know for sure whether or not any of my positive mindsets now are going to create more success in the future. No one does. None of us can predict the future, right? But for me, it isn't really so much about the future as much as it is about the present moment. In any present moment, we have the opportunity to think, think one way or another. Like I can put myself in a positive frame of mind and think that things are gonna work out or that I'm gonna get the promotion or that I'm going to be successful or whatever you're thinking. Like I could think all of that, but there's, there's no guarantee that any of that will come true. And likewise, I could think the opposite of that. I could take a pessimistic view or even a cynical view of things and tell myself, you know, nothing ever works out for me or I'm never going to get a promotion or I'm never going to be successful. I could think all of that, but there's also no guarantee that any of that will come true. So when thinking about that, what I like to do is, is recognize that the real power in positive thinking is actually about how I want to feel in this moment and which particular mindset will bring me closer to what I want. So ask yourself, if there is no guarantee that either the positive or the negative outcome will occur, which mindset will actually put you in the mood that you want to be in presently and which mindset represents what you want to have happen for you in the future? Now, I've come to a place in my life where perseverating on the negative outcomes is such a waste of time. Giving all of your energy to what you don't want seems an odd way to live. Negative stuff happens. It happens to all of us. And when it does happen, we deal with it. But why would we spend all of our energy anticipating the negative stuff? It not only ruins the present moment, but it takes you further away from what you truly want in your life. Joining me this week for the interview is Dr. Julie Schmidt-Hassan. Julie is a professor of school administration at Appalachian State University. She is a former teacher and principal and now teaches graduate courses in school leadership and conducts qualitative research in schools. Julie's research on long-term teacher impact is the foundation of her books, professional development programs, as well as her TEDx talk. Her book, Safe Seen and Stretched in the Classroom, was published in 2022. And her latest book, Pause, Ponder, and Persist in the Classroom, was published just this past June. So we're going to focus on that book for our conversation today. Julie is also the founder of Chalk and Chances Project. Uh, that is a vehicle for celebrating and elevating the teaching profession. And she is also the co-host of the Lessons That Last podcast. Julie, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, great great to meet you. Uh, going through that introduction, you are certainly busy with the writing and the project and the podcast. Uh, so I know how busy you are. So I really do appreciate you taking the time uh, to join me uh, today. So before we get going and talk about the, your latest book um, and get, dig into that conversation, can you highlight for us? I, I gave a little bit of the rundown of your resume, but let's dig in a little bit to your career. And let's talk about like where you started in education, the arc of your career, and, and maybe some of those pivotal moments that kind of brought you to where you are today. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I am the daughter and granddaughter of teachers, so it was inevitable that I would, I fought it for a little while, but eventually gave in and became a teacher. I taught mostly primary grades, so kindergarten through grade three for about 15 years and then became a school administrator, also begrudgingly, <laughs> but I had a principal who mentored me and convinced me that that was my path. Thank goodness he did because I loved that work. So I was an assistant principal and a principal for a decade. And then in 2015, my alma mater called Florida Southern College and said, we're starting an ed leadership program. Are you interested in coming and being a faculty member? And it was perfect timing. Our kids were going into college themselves. So we were empty nesting and it seemed like a good time for a change. I became a professor and I had this great mentor and he said to me, okay, your job is to teach these at leadership classes, but you also need a research focus. What do you really want to know about education? I'm curious. I want to know so many things, but at that particular time, my first grade teacher, Mrs. Russell, who is very important to me, retired. And what I really wanted to know was how do teachers like Mrs. Russell leave these lasting impacts on our lives? What do they say or do that sticks with us for years or decades after we leave the classroom? And I thought about as a qualitative researcher, that's my training, who do I talk to? Who do I observe? What do I need to do to find that out? I decided I just needed to talk to former students and they're everywhere. So I did something a little unusual for me. I went to the print shop and got one of those corrugated signs with the yard stake. And I started to take it with me to like flea markets, farmers markets, craft fairs, anywhere I wouldn't get arrested. And I would stick that sign in the ground and just invite people to talk to me about their teachers. And they did. Hundreds of people stopped. Usually they told a beautiful, very specific sweet story about a teacher every now and then an unsweet story about a teacher because we remember both things but i learned so much from the stories and what i loved was they would then connect it to something about their life today yeah. because my teacher did this or said this now i parent this way i'm this kind of professional i'm this kind of human being and it was clear that there is this lasting impact from these very small moves and moments in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So I finished collecting that data, funny enough, in March 2020, <laughs> which was serendipitous, not timing <laughs> on my part. It just happened that way. And so I got to write during the pandemic. That's when I wrote Safe, Seen, and Stretched in the classroom. But I started to think about challenges because the pandemic revealed so many challenges for us as educators. And I started to ask a different question because some teachers love a challenge, that they look for the opportunity in a challenge, they thrive on that. A challenge lights them up instead of starts to burn them out. So I wanted to look at those teachers and I started to look through the stories. And once we came out of a little bit of pandemic remoteness, started to go back in classrooms and observe specifically for that. How do these really impactful teachers navigate challenges uh, in productive, helpful, healthy ways? That's been my path. And that book, Pause, Ponder, and Persist, that came out of that data was just released two weeks ago. So mm -hmm. it's hot off the press. It's been 
a project that was definitely something I needed to learn and practice. I think we study and we write about what we most need to learn. And that was for sure true with that book. So that, that brought me here. I'm in Boone, North Carolina at Appalachian State University now, still doing Mm -hmm. that research, still teaching educational leadership grad courses and just loving my life as an educational researcher. Yeah. You know, I, I, teaching is not immune. Like any profession, there's always going to be the impacts that are potentially negative and not so fun. And then there's the other positive impacts from just anecdotally, the ratio, when people came up to talk to you about their teachers, I'm guessing that the ratio was significantly more positive than to the negative stories, but any sort of insight on that in terms of the things that sort of people were, um, the ratio of positive to negative? Yes. Thankfully, I would say 90, 10, if not more skewed toward the positive. And the funny thing about the negative stories was a lot of times it was the first time that person had told someone about what happened in the classroom because when a teacher and sometimes it happens, we feel humiliated or shamed or called Mm -hmm. out and embarrassed. We don't talk about shame. Like I was surprised people didn't go home and tell their parents about it or, Mm -hmm. you know, they just sort of carried that shaming moment, but it was a beautiful opportunity for me to say, I'm so sorry that happened to you. That shouldn't have happened to you. And I think there was some healing in just me receiving a story, but it also tells us what absolutely not to do in the classroom. I didn't write a lot about that in the book because I think we know, (laughs) know, I think we know (laughs) that shaming is harmful short-term and long-term. I think we know not to call kids out, at least at this point, we should all know in front of others to do anything that embarrasses or humiliates a child of any age. So it it wasn't necessarily a a big point in the book, but I did try to put in there the fact that these memories people carry go both ways. Yeah, for sure. We, we, and, and and we have to be also kind to ourselves in the sense that, you know, if you're in front of that many kids for that long of a career, you're bound to inadvertently make some mistakes in what you do and have those moments because we are also human. And, uh, and uh, are there examples in any profession where someone is, you know, intentional about that? Probably. But I think in most cases we make mistakes inadvertently and, and just being kind to ourselves. And, and, and if we're aware of it, we can learn, learn from that. I think the lessons that you're, you're teaching are helping all of us become more aware of what's necessary uh, in terms of supporting kids in the classroom and certainly more complicated now, which we're going to get to, because I want to start. There were a couple beautiful stories about things that mistakes that teachers made and modeled how to apologize. And that was actually part of the powerful positive stories. A lot of kids never have, never are on the receiving end of a sincere apology. Right. Yeah, that's fair. There were some beautiful stories about teachers who lost patience, as we all do, Mm -hmm. and then having that conversation with a kid. And it just really, re, you know, revealing our humanity to the mm-hmm. to the students and letting them know that, hey, I made a mistake. I screwed up here. I lost my cool. I shouldn't have said that. I, and, and to sincerely apologize really shows a level of authenticity that I think I think most teachers do bring to the job. But I do think there are times where there are maybe individuals who have their guard up a little too much and, and maybe need to let that go. So I want to begin with this big picture question um, before we dig into the content of the book. And 
And it has to do, uh, just interested in your perspective on the residual effect of the pandemic. I think we can safely mm-hmm. say that this past school year, 22-23 school year, uh, was probably the first pandemic or post-pandemic school year uh, mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes. I know, and I know it's hard to generalize, Julie, uh, you know, educators into one broad, broad category or just think of them as a monolith. But I want to ask you, sort of within the context of the profession um, for teachers, what are some of the most significant ways, and I think these can be both positive and negative, what are some of the most significant ways that you've seen educators impacted by the pandemic? And when you think about the negative impacts that the pandemic had on teachers in the profession, what are some of the solutions or the resolutions to some of those issues that have emerged? I started to notice pre-pandemic, this increasing level of burnout. Mm. I had some grad students who were, I mean, they were, they'd gotten master's degrees in educational leadership, some of them doctorates. They were amazing, committed educators. And I remember one in particular, Deanna who called me and said, you know, Dr. Hassan, I think I'm going to resign. She was an assistant principal. And she said, it's not that education has gotten harder. It's just that it's gotten to be the wrong kind of hard. And the wrong kind of hard just stuck with me. I thought that that says something where we are all experiencing and trying to say, and then pandemic came, we pivoted really quickly. Most of us to remote instruction, a whole flood of new challenges started. Somehow these amazing teachers juggled teaching remotely, taking care of their kids, some taking care of elderly parents, caring for themselves through this trauma and making it all work. But the beauty of it was outside of our teaching, parts of our lives slowed down and we became aware of the level of burnout that we were experiencing. And I think for some teachers, they've advocated better for themselves coming out of pandemic. They've set some parameters around how much I will work and tried to figure out how to create a better balance. But on the negative side, some decided it's not worth it. it it's costing me too much to do this job I love. So I think we saw both. We saw people who figured out how to make a better balance going back in. And then we saw people who said, I don't know how to make it work for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you definitely hit the nail on the head there with people who became very disillusioned with the profession. Um, mm-hmm. What is the answer? Okay. We have teachers who are, besides quitting the profession, which is unfortunate mm-hmm. because it is something they love. And and um, But what, what, what do you see as the the resolution or the answer to how, how do we post pandemic? Let's ask the question this way. How do we post pandemic reignite that fire or that passion for the job without going back to that trajectory of burnout? There, there are systemic issues for sure Mm -hmm. that we need to advocate well for our profession and ourselves that are in some ways feel outside of our control there, there's a micro-political climate that's tough right now. I think we feel under fire, a little vilified. <laughs> I know here in the South, in North Carolina, um, <laughs> the Southern part of the United States, that's a thing right now. Yeah. So we're fighting that piece mm-hmm. and we can only do so much about that. In terms of things we can control internally, that's what I've been trying to figure out. We we're full of, of work with challenges. The challenges are inevitable. They're coming, they're coming in different ways and maybe at a faster pace than ever before. 
So if we know this work is full of challenges, how do we navigate challenges in ways that light us up instead of burn us out? Mm -hmm. And really pause, pondering, and persisting is mindfulness. It's awareness. It's letting go of some judgment and assumptions. And I think it's helpful. I am not ever a woman who will tell you there's a quick fix for anything in education. Certainly not a proponent of an easy answer. Everything is messy and complicated in this work. Um, Everything requires some critical thinking and some nuance. But I do think this kind of mindfulness and embracing of challenges and framing them as opportunities can be helpful. Yeah. Let me, uh, let's take this one more step here and say, I create a T chart and on the one side, I, I, it's called the one column is called system and Mm -hmm. the other column is called self. So let me ask it this way. If you were to make a list on each side of that ledger, what's the one thing above all else that needs to change from a system? systems perspective and what's the one thing we can do in terms of ourselves to prevent going back to that burnout but to find ourselves in that passionate position gosh the one thing can i give you a top three okay you can give me a top three they don't <laughs> have to be ranked all right give me a top, top three but three on both sides so three the system and yeah. three for yourself system side i'm hearing from teachers resources They don't have enough counselors, psychologists, people to support their exceptional, their kids with exceptional needs, um, enough coaches, trainers. So there's certainly a resources piece to that Um, accountability that is punitive. And uh, the, the way we've been doing accountability in the United States, especially, is contributes to burnout. We can do accountability in a way that's good for teachers and kids that informs us instead of punishes us. So I would put that second. And third, of course, compensation is important. I always tell students, if you have a little more compensation, you can buy some things that save you some time. You know, Time is, yeah. is precious. But if we give teachers some means, then they're not working a second job. They, they can get a babysitter. They can do. So I really think, plus it's an honoring of the skills they bring. So I would put those three on the system side. Okay. On the internal side, certainly health and wellness is a priority. If we're not well, we can't teach well. So self-care in terms of the way we nourish our bodies and our minds. Um, But there are mindsets that we know are helpful mindsets when engaging in this work. So we know that mindfulness is a helpful mindset. I had a teacher, I was doing this training not long ago, and she said, having to be present feels like that's going to be a a heavy thing and stress me out. So we talked about where your mind goes when you're not present. (laughs) And when you're not in the present, your mind starts to drift to the past and things are upset about and all the the memories that aren't helpful, or for me, my mind goes to the future, worry, anxiety, really present is the most peaceful place to be most of the time, right? So I think if we practice that presence, if we find a way to deal with the challenges, frustrations that come, which means managing our emotions, because a lot of classroom management is managing ourselves, a lot of managing the work we do is managing ourselves. There are those those mindsets we can use to help make this complex, messy, difficult work not necessarily easier, 
but so that we're more resilient and we can sustain. Yeah, I think that's a really important point about resiliency because I, you know, I've had this conversation over the, a number of different episodes about self-care and the importance of self-care so that we can opt in. That self-care is not about opting out, but it's about how we take care of ourselves in order to show up uh, the way that we need to show up in the job. And I think that be, developing that resiliency and being proactive about self-care and, and looking after yourself allows us to show up in that way that we need to uh, in terms of what our students need. Okay, let's let's get to the book. Let's talk about Pause, Ponder, and Persist in the Classroom, How Teachers Turn Challenges into Opportunities for Impact. Um, you, you touched a little bit about, upon this uh, earlier, so maybe just a quick um, the genesis of the book, the idea for the book, how did you go from gathering the data to deciding you were going to write a book and, and uh, put that book together? I like to write long form. So okay. in my profession, we typically publish articles and I yeah. do that because it's, it's part of my responsibilities and I'm tenure seeking. So I yeah. do write articles, but I love to wrestle with a big question in a long form and really explore something. And I also am passionate about doing research that is easily accessible and understandable so that teachers can use it. Yeah. So that, it. that's kind of why I love, I love a to write a book. I should say, yeah. I love and hate. I love yeah, having, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I just oh, loaned your book um, on standards yeah. based to a grad yeah. student this week. So yeah. I know, you yeah. know, um, I love having written a book and I love right. pieces of wrestling with a book, but we both know it's, it's a, it can be a painful process. So Absolutely. For this one, at first, you know, we were in the pandemic when I started to wrestle with that question about challenges. I went back through those stories I collected and there was this one, there were several, but one in particular, I kept going over and over. It was such a simple, small moment. It was a young man named Ethan I met on a college campus. He was an engineering student and he told me about his fourth grade teacher, Mr. Cribs. And he said, I was so excited for fourth grade because we went to the big playground and there was a volleyball court. So they would play volleyball every day at recess. They would try to spike the ball. Kids would get hurt. P kids would quit the game. It became this big thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it from myself as a teacher. Would have taken that ball away real quick. <laughs> would have complained to my colleague about having to deal with this foolishness at recess. But this teacher somehow figured out a way to use that problem at recess as a teachable moment. Mm -hmm. So he said to the class, I bet you 15 extra minutes of recess that you cannot volley this ball back and forth across the net a hundred times, but there's a stipulation. Everyone has to touch the ball at least once. So they started to teach each other how to play. They started to hit it in a way so that kids could hit it back. And Ethan said they would count every time it went across one, two, three, four. And he, he said they started to call it the infinite game mm. because their goal was just to keep it going forever. And he said something really important. He said, I'm an engineering student now. It's a really difficult major. So I organized this study group and we work together and we support each other and we help each other prepare for tests and projects. And he said, it's sort of like playing the infinite game. And I thought, <laughs> wow, this teacher yeah. took a really frustrating situation. Yeah. 
used it in a teachable moment. And this kid, 10 years later, is using that lesson and it's going to inform the kind of professional he becomes. Like, what is it that allows some teachers to do that? Not me, who would have taken the ball away and lectured <laughs> them and complained right. to everyone. Right. But yeah, for, for some sure. reason, Mr. Cribs looked at this challenge and said, there's an opportunity here. And instead mm-hmm. of getting all tangled up and upset, created it really peace for himself because they were mm-hmm. playing, they were all engaged in this game. I taught yeah. this lesson. So it started with that story. And then I started to look for more and more. And once we came out of, of pandemic remoteness, I started to observe in classrooms looking specifically for that. And yeah. I saw it over and over again in different forms. Yeah. And I realized in every situation, there was first a pause. So somehow when that emotional, yeah, of course, we're humans. We we get frustrated. We feel disrespected. We, we get angry. They would stop and you could almost see the breath, like a deep breath. And that pause was the safeguard between whatever the stimulus was and an automatic reaction. Right. So instead, they could come up with a thoughtful response and they didn't regret and they didn't damage relationships and they found these opportunities for teachable moments. So it's, it all always started with that pause. Are there, so let's dig into that three-part framework, the, the pause, ponder, and persist. And, um, you know, the first step pause, um, when you face an unexpected challenge, that obviously is sound advice. Um, maybe easier said than done, Julie, um, but, uh, but good advice. So let me ask it. Let me ask you a question this way. Um, I think we all kind of know that when things come along, we need to pause. Are there things I can do to remind myself of that? Because when you get caught up into a moment, you're not thinking rationally, you're, you're reacting emotionally. And so it's kind of a catch 22 in the sense that I know I'm supposed to pause, but that's a rational thought when something unexpected happens or a student acts in a certain way that may be offensive or disrespectful or whatever you want to, whatever the challenge might be. And I get caught in, is, are there things I can do to remind myself proactively? How can I remind myself to pause in those moments? It's a practice and it's something I still practice I still react. You can ask my family. (laughs) I wrote the book about it. I practice it so hard and I still do it. But we get better at it with practice. It's so much of it is awareness. When something happens, we have to know first what's happening inside us. Mm-hmm. For me, my shoulders are up by my ears. My jaw clenches. Like I know when, and I get curious about myself when something happens, especially if it is something that's not a big thing. And I think, Ooh, girl, that hit a nerve <laughs> mm-hmm. that triggered something. So I think so much of it is self-awareness. We have to, as teachers and educators know ourselves, know what pushes our buttons, know when our buttons are pushed and practice taking that deep breath. A breath is the best tool we've got in situations mm-hmm. like this. For sure. And it really is. There's no, easy way. It's a practice. I love that. I love that idea of awareness because I've, you know, for many years thought to myself, you know, it's interesting as, as, 
as an observer to myself that whenever you become aware, the emotions almost dissipate, right? Whenever you're angry or frustrated or, you know, driving down the road and you get frustrated by another driver, and then you have a moment where you go, wow, I'm really upset. As soon as you have that moment of awareness, it's almost like all the anger dissipates. You're almost looking at yourself third party and, and kind of, you know, it seems like the emotion often just kind of dissipates and goes away. So that I, I love that idea of just continually practicing and being being aware in that sense. So then next you say we need to, uh, and again, this great advice, challenging though for us to do as human beings, I think, you say we need to suspend our assumptions and approach the challenge from a place of curiosity. And again, I have to be honest, Julie, when I think about, you know, facing an unexpected challenge, things, something that comes out of nowhere, mm -hmm. that is another thing that might be a little easier said than done. I'm not disagreeing with the premise, of course, but, but that might be challenging for us to do. So I want to ask you two things about this idea of suspending our assumptions, et cetera. Why, why did you use the word curiosity? So first, why mm -hmm. curiosity? Like, how does that play out? And second, um, again, how can I remember train or condition myself to be curious about unexpected challenges? I think there's a humility in curiosity that's important for us as educators. When we realize what we don't know, um, Edgar and Peter Schein, I think those are the authors of Humble Inquiry, which is an amazing leadership book. And their whole premise is we can only make decisions on the information we have and if we have bad information, we're making bad decisions. Mm -hmm. So if the information comes from our assumptions, it's probably not the most reliable information. If we ask questions from a place of humility and people trust us enough to answer honestly, we can make better decisions. So this piece really came from another story in the data. It was a man named Marcus who talked about Mrs. Pope, his high school home economics teacher. He said, I loved her class because we cooked on Fridays. And one particular Friday, we made chocolate chip cookies. Mrs. Pope said, you can each eat one when they cool. And he said, I know she saw me put three more in my pocket when she asked me to stay after class. So he expected a lecture or a referral to the principal or to say he was going to be excluded from cooking from now on. And instead... Like all of these things she probably assumed about this kid. He's got no self-control. He's disrespectful. He's a thief. Somehow pushed past that, pushed past her own emotions of feeling frustrated, disrespected. And she asked a question. It was a really simple question. Are you hungry? And it turns out he trusted her enough to tell her, Dad left a month ago. My mom's not doing well. Our electricity's been off for a while. We don't have any food in the house. No. I was like, wow, we could have gone off on a hungry kid, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I had to think about how many times have I said something or done something in the classroom on an assumption. Right. And all she did was ask a question and she ended up with her ladies in her church group, bringing him food often, setting him up with some, some assistance and some resources, letting him wash his clothes in the home at classroom, stayed a really important part of his life and really changed the trajectory of his life. He was in a really difficult spot. He was thinking about dropping out. And that question started this relationship and this support. So to me, it is about not assuming 
and instead being aware again of all the things we're assuming, figuring out if we even have evidence that that's remotely true, and then considering other possibilities and humbly asking the questions. Right. And, and, and just realizing how much we might be operating out of assumption and uh, projecting onto the student things that we may or may not know to be true. We just make that assumption for sure. Right. You know, when, when the unexpected challenges are behavioral, I, I've often said and been saying this for years, if you examine student behavior through the lens of any sort of what we would call misbehavior, whatever, however we categorize that, as the communication of an unmet need, you will, I think, start to be curious about what is going on here because clearly that that question about are you hungry and and the the, the behavior was the communication of an unmet need and I think that's a that's yeah. an important lens to use as we talk about um, you know how I to respond that, to those situations. That's, yeah. that's a great yeah. way to say that. Yeah. So finally then it's 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 pause, ponder and persist and you mm-hmm. uh, say that teachers need to persist in this dance of patient in- inquiry and thoughtful responses in a way that leads us to better outcomes for students. Now, you say patient inquiry, but I guess the question would be this. What if the situation is more acute? Mm-hmm. Like there, there can be a, an after-class conversation and a sit-down, and, and I keep mm-hmm. asking you and probing, but what if the challenge is more acute and quick decisions are necessary? Yeah. So how do we balance this idea of patient inquiry with a situation that requires a more immediate decision? And, and some situations are easy. Yeah. You know, a quick redirect of a student who's not focused or, you know, tapping on the desk or whatever. There are so, I mean, we make, was it Deborah Lowenberg Ball, the researcher who counted in just a couple of minutes of a lesson, a student teacher was teaching 22 decisions. A lot of them had to do with behavior. What do I respond to? What do I let go? So there are so many just things that are quick and easy to address. Uh In this case, I think what I'm talking about are those situations where we start to engage in a way that's not helpful, that we find that there is something deeper going on. Maybe it's a consistent issue. Maybe it's a more um, severe issue. Uh And we have to... I call it persist because like you said, easier said than done and it's a practice, right? Right. So there's the persistence part. I can't decide, okay, I'm just going to pause when I get upset and I'm going to push aside all my assumptions. And now that I know to do that, I'm good. (laughs) Check. (laughs) No, I've been working on this so hard since I started this project in 2020 and I'm still struggling to practice it, my family would tell you absolutely she's still struggling to practice. <laughs> that. Yeah, that that uh, it is a challenge for sure, and I think that. Um, but but building a habit is always, you know, what we know to be true and what we know to be good and what we know to be right often takes time to develop and become habitual. So the idea of actively thinking about it, maybe having some visual cues on the back of your classroom, putting up you know, pause, ponder and persist or something that reminds you visually or some sort of symbol that, that gives you, you know, maybe it's P cubed, mm-hmm. uh, some, something that yeah. gives you the visual at the back of the room that just reminds you to, uh, to go through the process. I Listeners, uh, a little yeah. heart icon with the pause sign. I mean, yeah. you see it back here. It's on <laughs> yeah, the cover yeah. of the book. I keep Love thinking it. a tattoo right here might be, <laughs> might be helpful. <laughs> right. Maybe my right. eyelid. Yes. A tattoo. Yeah. A tattoo would be, uh, <laughs> 
certainly permanent. Uh, listeners, the book, of course, is called Pause, Ponder, and Persist in the Classroom, How Teachers Turn Challenges into Opportunities for Impact. Uh, I'll have a link in the show notes um, for that uh, as well, where you can uh, check out the book. All right, uh, Julie, two questions left. Um, these are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast and uh, as we finish up here. Here's the first one. And listeners, you're going to recognize a slight shift in the emphasis of this question, though it is essentially two sides of the same coin. Uh, and Julie, you can take this question in any direction that you wish. But the question ultimately is this, educationally speaking, what gets you out of bed every morning? Hmm. I would ha- we talked about this. I would have to say curiosity. Okay. I'm fascinated with teachers and teaching. And as much as we know about it, people like you and so many other authors and researchers who study this all have little pieces of it that they clarify for us. Like for me, standards-based and accountability, like you really have a good handle on that. So we all have a little piece of it, but it's still such a mystery. And I hope we never fully figure out this magical, mysterious work. Uh, Any day that I get to spend in a school, watching teachers teach, talking to teachers about their work, it's a day that I'm hopping out of bed. And, and for me, that's a lot of my days. I work with my grad students. They're all teachers. We have great conversations about the work. So just trying to to better understand this magical, mysterious, messy work gets me out of bed. Yeah, I think never, never losing our curiosity about the profession, never losing our curiosity about what works with students, how we can inspire them to be the best that they can be. I think that's a, that's a great cause. So finally, uh, as you know, uh, I love food. I uh, fashion myself as a bit of a foodie, not uh, not in the uh, obnoxious, snobby kind of way, but I love food. Julie, you live in Boone, North Carolina. So the question, of course, is this. Where, where is the best place to eat in Boone, North Carolina? We have so much good food in the mountains of Western North Carolina, but our house is in a little valley. It's called Valley Crucis. It's beautiful. It's sort of wedged between the mountains and by the Watauga River. So we get a lot of tourists and they often stop and ask, where should we eat? And I always say over yonder. And when I say over yonder, I point. And I think they think I'm not being specific. (laughs) (laughs) But the restaurant is called over yonder. And it's amazing. So all the sort of Southern favorites, they have pimento cheese and fried okra and collard greens and mm-hmm. the fresh trout, cornbread. I could go on and on about mac over and cheese. Oh, the best mac and cheese you've you ever go. had. Of course. You can't say Southern food without mac and cheese without for sure. Cheese. So when you go to over, when you go to over yonder, what do you order? What's your favorite? I always, I, since moving to North Carolina, have become really, unfortunately, addicted to pimento cheese. Oh, okay. You, you, once you start, you can't stop. So we always start with pimento cheese dip. And then I usually get the trout, you know, it comes right out of the river here when it's in season and it's amazing. Okay. Oh, this is a great, great choice. I thought maybe North Carolina, you might be uh, thinking about North Carolina barbecue, but... Uh, Barbecue's but, great. Uh, some some o- chicken fried yonder. steak at over yonder. And, <laughs> I mean, you can't go wrong. There's, they got shrimp and grits on that uh, on that. Of course they do. <laughs> of course they do. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Absolutely. I love shrimp and grits. I've, I've learned to make it. I, I think I do a decent job for a Canadian, a West Coast Canadian. <laughs> Probably not as authentic as they make in the South, but I'm trying. Right. Well, I'm you trying come to make it right. up. 
here and we'll go to over yonder. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, listeners, you can and should follow Julie on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at Julie S. Hassan. Uh, there's, uh, you can also go on Facebook. That's Chalk and Chances on Facebook. Julie is also on LinkedIn. So I have links in the show notes for all those social media platforms, as well as you can go to the website, www.chalkandchances.com. And of course, you want to check out the Lessons That Last podcast. Julie, uh, 60 seconds or less. Tell us a little bit about the podcast. The podcast is me and my friend, Laura, of 42 years, who is a, an amazing English teacher. So we talk a lot about her perspectives on teaching and my perspectives as a researcher. And we share a lot of the stories from the data, kind of unpack okay. those and talk about those a bit, sometimes ridiculous and silly, but most of the time on topic. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. And, and assuming you can find that on Apple, Spotify, yes. all the spots, Apple, yeah, Spotify, uh, lessons that last. Perfect. Lessons that last podcast for sure. Julie, uh, again, I know how busy you are. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. I really enjoyed it. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to remind you that now is the perfect time to start or continue building your assessment literacy. Now, I know exactly what some of you are thinking. Hey, Tom. It's the summer. It's summer vacation. I need to take a break from work. I need to decompress. I need a mental break away from anything work-related. I really do understand that. Education is a demanding profession, and it takes an incredible amount of mental energy to make it through the school year. There are a lot of tough jobs out there, but let's be clear, education is one of them. So I am completely empathetic to the need for some mental and even physical downtime. But if you think about it, if you think about the school year, the summer is actually the perfect time to engage in at least either learning a little bit or continuing to learn more about assessment. Let's just run through the school year. At the beginning of the school year, you would tell me, Tom, listen, ugh, startup so busy. There's no time for any deep thinking or deep professional learning around assessment, right? So and then as we move into the fall, you would tell me, that you're just catching your breath from startup and there's, you know, you're trying to establish some routines and you're feeling exhausted because startup was so intense. And then as we head toward December, you're going to tell me that it's the holiday season and things are so busy and they're crazy and there's no time. And then coming out of the holidays, it will be, you know, trying to reestablish routines and the busyness of life, as well as the fact that it's dark when you go to work and dark when you drive home. So you're just not really feeling energetic. And as we head towards the spring and the dog days between the holidays and spring break, you'll tell me that you're just trying to make it through and claw your way and that spring break is on the horizon. And then as we get into the late spring, you're going to tell me that there's, you know, the intensity of the school ending activities and, and closing out a school year and all of that. I'm not saying that none of that is real because it is. I'm not suggesting that those reasons are made up or excuses because they're not. Those are very real things that educators feel as they move through the school year. So if all of that is true, then now, here in the summer, it is truly the perfect time to engage in some professional learning. Now, I'm not talking about spending seven hours a day studying assessment. I mean, just imagine if you averaged, I don't know, 30 minutes a day. That's three hours a week if you took one day off. And remember, that's an average. And I'm not even saying you have to do it every day. And truthfully, you don't have to do anything I say. <laughs> but if the school year is as busy as we all know it is, and of course it is, 
then the summer is the perfect time to engage your mind in a little bit of learning. You know, maybe choose one aspect of assessment. Maybe you want to spend some time reading about self-assessment and how to use assessment to teach kids to be more self-regulatory about their learning. Or, or maybe you want to learn more about assessment design to ensure that assessments are appropriately matched to the cognitive complexity of the standards. Or, or maybe you want to learn more about how to be instructionally agile or how to give effective feedback. Or maybe you want to read about grading, sound grading practices. Whatever it is you feel is most pressing for you in your own growth and development around assessment, now is the time to do it. Maybe you create a routine for yourself. You get up in the morning, make a coffee, sit on the couch or or maybe the back deck or sit by the pool or whatever your situation is and spend 30 minutes engaged in reading a book or listening to a podcast or reading a blog post or just reflecting on what you could do to create some of these opportunities in your classroom. I understand the need to disengage during the summer and I know that the mental break is really important. But we can sometimes forget that the busyness of the school year can also inhibit our opportunities for deeper professional learning. And again, it doesn't even have to be 30 minutes a day. Just something that continues to expand your capacity for sound assessment practices. I, I know we can't always be working. And I certainly understand the need for beach time, downtime, family time, you know, fun time, all of that. Whatever it is that recharges your battery over the summer. But this is an investment in you and an investment in your continued growth and understanding what sound assessment practices look like in the classroom. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for links for the upcoming professional learning events that are happening this fall. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Happy summer, everyone.